welcome to the Bioethics Podcast, a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. I'm Michael Sleesman, Managing Director and Research Scholar at the Center. In this edition of the Bioethics Podcast, we bring you the first part of a lecture by CBHD Senior Research Fellow on Neuroethics, William P. Cheshire Jr., MD, entitled The Slippery Slope of Normality, Lessons from Neuroethics. This lecture was originally delivered as a combined institute session during our 2009 pre-conference institutes. In this part of the lecture, Dr. Cheshire explores the nature of slippery slope arguments, the meaning of normality, developments in cognitive enhancement, and arguments in favor of neural enhancement. It's very exciting to be here. I've been asked to talk about the slippery slope of normality, lessons from neuroethics and wondering what the organizers had in mind when they picked me to talk about the slippery slope of normality. I'm not sure where along that slope I am, but hopefully we're, we're all on the continuum together somewhere. We have in ethics what are known as slippery slope arguments. They consist of, of the following. First, there is a relatively small first step, an innocent step, if you will, but that then leads to a logical chain of related events. Some may be causative, others just associated phenomena, but down that slope, eventually, everything culminates in a morally significant outcome, whereas the first step might not be morally significant to everyone. Surely, at the end, when the worst possible scenario happens, we can all agree that it was not a good direction to head down. That's the slippery slope argument in its simplest form. Now, we might say, well, in ethics, let's think of where we can put some stop points to keep the ball from rolling all the way down the hill. If we can stop it a third of the way, then maybe the outcome is not so bad, and we can still derive some good uh, from going in that direction. And so we have to ask, well, are these reasonable stops? Uh, are all of the events that we predict happening down the slope likely to occur? And uh, these are all matters of speculation. In fact, the slippery slope argument is a forecast. It's like a weather forecast, a forecast of threatening weather. How reliable can it be? The slippery slope argument is often used to convince someone to accept a conclusion that he or she otherwise would likely reject. That there are numerous slippery slope fallacies. They occur when the contingencies necessary for descent along the slope are not established. Some of the steps along that chain may be very likely, others improbable. Hypothetically, slippery slope arguments can be very difficult to defend because there are many what-ifs and not necessarilys. They carry rhetorical force uh, because we fear the final outcome. But it may be difficult to predict and quantify and agree on all of the conditions necessary for the undesirable consequence to be realized. But I would add that actual slippery slope phenomena have been realized and agreed upon in retrospect when there's no longer any doubt about the probability of descending down the slope. I would point out, as an example, the Dutch experiment in euthanasia as a clear example of something that has progressively uh, exceeded its original ethical boundaries. Ed Pellegrino, in a debate uh, on this campus several years ago, in speaking of the Dutch experiment, argued the slippery slope is no fairy tale. It actually can occur. Where next? Uh, neuroscience is leading us in exciting directions. We have a winding road of bioethics. Uh, somewhere along uh, up ahead, the pavement ends. As uh, Bill Hurlbut said at a meeting several years ago, 
we are at the outer edge of the expanding universe of ethics. No one has ever been here before. We're faced with new questions, new technologies, new challenges. No one has ever had to address all of these things before. So we are on fresh ground. We get to explore it together. Beyond the horizon, there may be some slippery slopes. In other areas, level ground, and in other areas, uphill climbs. And uh, we need a lot of information and wisdom to discern which are which. Neuroethics, by the way, I think uh, Leon Cass defined well when he was chair of the President's Council on Bioethics. Uh, a neologism, says Cass, that's meant to embrace the ethical implications of advances in neuroscience and neuropsychiatry, ranging from the ethical issues connected to technical interventions, such as the use of psychotropic drugs or deep brain stimulation, also the implications for human self-understanding on such topics as the nature of ethical judgment, the character of personal responsibility, the implications for human self-understanding in those areas secondary to the scientific findings of neuroscience. For most of this lecture, I want to concentrate on the enhancement question in order to do it justice within the, the range of the title of slippery slopes and normality. We have to ask, what is the brain? This three-pound organ that resides within our skulls. <coughs> It's capable of ethical reflection and moral reasoning, uh, which is fascinating to me that a few pounds of flesh can engage such questions, that any of us can. The brain in this way is mysterious, impenetrable, opaque, poetic, if you will, and inscrutable. The brain also is a physical entity, as a character on a past TV show, Three Pounds, uh, this neurosurgeon said, it's wires in a box, and some people do think about the brain in this way. I think that's an incomplete explanation. Uh, the brain has been looked at variously throughout history, and as this table points out, the way that we think about the, what the brain is usually appeals to the highest level of technology that exists at the time. In each case, the brain exceeds the level of technology. In the 17th century, hydraulic machines were the best technology around, the brain was compared to them. The motion of, and flow of CSFs, cerebrospinal fluid through the ventricles and so forth. And then Descartes compared the brain to uh, fountains and water-driven clocks with counterweights and wheels. Willis to the pipe organ, Lamaitre to the harpsichord, Galvani to the electric battery, which he invented. And these days, we tend to compare it to the computer, the most sophisticated device on hand, we were just commenting as we we're setting up here that this clunky laptop, which is slow by today's standards, because it's a few years old, and I'm hoping it will last through the lecture. Even though it is inferior by the standards of most of what I see in the room, it's still far better than the technology that was used to send astronauts to the moon, which is amazing that uh, they got into those little crafts with 1960s technology computers. But the computer is the best model of technology that we have to try to understand the brain. It doesn't mean it's the same type of entity. But it sets a standard, doesn't it? We have standards of technological progress. Our information technologies, our encyclopedias, our libraries. Uh, we have a flood of information coming at us, a flood of digital media coming at us. Uh, it's hard to keep up. Uh, and then we take our computers and we redesign them, upgrade them. Our technology is being upgraded all the time, but the brain 
is still the brain. It's the same technology that people had 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 years ago. Uh, the same technology in our heads. Uh, we've learned to use it in various ways. But can we make it better? And the ethical question, should we make it better? And what do we mean by better? And can we agree on what we mean by better? Let me start from memory loss. There are about 4 million Americans with Alzheimer's disease in the United States. It's expected we may have 14, 15 million by the year 2050. We have a few medications that help with memory in Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. They don't do a lot. There are other drugs being developed that are on the way. Once we have drugs that are effective and more effective than we have now for improving memory when memory is impaired, we then have the option, if we wish, to use such drugs to enhance cognitive function in normal individuals. That's the interesting ethical question. So I present you with these two advertisements and ask you which is real. One I got from the internet, the other I typed into this computer. We have experience nirvana, pills that make you smarter, thinner, more sexually potent, and activate longevity. And then we have ProThink, which enhances your cognitive performance. The new cognitive enhancing drug to help you focus your thoughts, forget unpleasant memories, non-essential information, and irrelevant obligations. ProThink lifts the emotional burden of feeling as if you were responsible for other people. Helps you make the decision that's right for you. The first pill to enhance your ability to think ethically. Which is real and which is fiction? Or are they too close to one another? Well, you've, you've probably guessed it. The ProThink is my invention. It doesn't actually exist. I'm not selling it. I wouldn't endorse it if, I, if it, were, it were to exist. Nirvana is an interesting thing. Uh, I, I saw this ad for it in H Plus magazine, a transhumanist magazine. And so I, I read about Nirvana. And the active ingredient turns out to be something that's found in chocolate. I'm thinking that <clears throat> if this works, why not just get chocolate? <clears throat> the problem with chocolate, the beta-phenylethylamine in chocolate, is that it's rapidly metabolized by MAO, monoamine oxidase B. So very little reaches the brain. It's metabolized too quickly to, uh, for enough to get to the brain to do much good. Uh, but they claim, this company, their product has two enhancements. It's supplemented with piperidine. Now look that up. That's actually the ingredient in black pepper. Chocolate and black pepper. I don't think these were world-class cooks that came up with this. <laughs> piperidine inhibits MAOB. I don't know how well it inhibits it or whether it's enough to achieve uh, biologically active levels in the brain. They don't tell you that on the web page. They, they, they say that uh, this helps. And then they have a patent-pended self-emulsifying nanosphere delivery system. That sounds impressive. These aren't carbon nanospheres or anything uh, made in an atom-by-atom -atom assembly uh, plant, but rather uh, just bubbles of fat, if you will, at a nanoscale level to kind of hold the compound there. I'm not sure what that does, really. I wouldn't recommend the product, but it is interesting the claims that are made because they claim that this pill gives you feelings of pleasure, ecstasy, emotional well-being, extended longevity. Where are the studies for that? I haven't seen them. Slower aging, fat burning, and weight loss. 
brightens your mood, supercharged physical and athletic performance, increased energy, alertness, awareness, increased libido, sexual desire, increased mind power, reaction speed, attention, learning, and memory. So no need to make a difficult choice among the various options with this drug. You get them all. <laughs> so they say. Uh, again, it's not an endorsement. But it is rather interesting to see how far they can stretch our imaginations. There are lots of other examples of compounds like this available on the internet. You can, it's a billions of uh, dollars a year industry internationally. Uh, here is a substance called Get Smart. Um, <laughs> we have some familiar and unfamiliar ones. Uh, seaweed, uh, we have uh, Paracetam. This is a box of some I bought over the counter in Russia. Brain Lightning, Brain Vigor. This company called Relentless Improvement offers uh, help with cognitive support. Again, no endorsements here. This one, Deep Thought, is maybe worth some deep thinking about. Uh, there, there are too many claims here to read through them. Um, it stimulates the corpus callosum. That sounds good. It you know, allows your hemispheres to communicate with one another. By the way, women do that better than men. Women have more fibers in the corpus callosum. This is a little disturbing. This ad markets cognitive performance vitamins to children. Pictures of bears on the front. This, this uh, vitamin pill is called Child Bright. Um, I'm not sure it's substantially different from other child vitamins, but this is the way drugs are marketed now. Brain Lightning. They, this company claims that all of the ingredients have been shown by many studies to be profound memory enhancers. Where are those studies? I couldn't find them. So I compared the ingredients in brain lightening to a common over-the-counter children's vitamin and discovered that virtually everything in brain lightening is found in the child's vitamin. There are a few things the vitamin has that brain lightening omits. Uh, but the evidence is lacking for most of these. It doesn't mean that there won't be nutritional substances on the market in the future that actually do enhance cognition. But right now, it's a, it's a smoke and mirrors game. Uh, one of the studies that I found actually did a randomized placebo-controlled trial of ginkgo biloba, one of the memory-enhancing uh, over-the-counter agents. They found it was no better than placebo and measures of standard neuropsychological function. So approach this with, with skepticism. But there is a lot of hype. And if you recall the story of uh, Viagra, what if there were a Viagra equivalent for enhancing thinking? What would that mean? Well, it would mean a, perhaps a, a, a market shift. This is what happened uh, to the uh, stock in the company that uh, announced uh, Viagra back in 1998. And, and it might have been a good investment then. The race is on to develop what's been called the thinking person's Viagra. Modafinil, we were having a conversation about this earlier today, a drug that promotes wakefulness. Has, uh, this is a prescription drug, by the way, and it has a number of, of uh, very legitimate, uh, very appropriate uses in medicine. Uh, but it's interesting to follow the market demand. I've been tracking it each year, and the, uh, the sales have been going steadily up. There is a lot of demand for medications that enhance or alter cognitive function. One of the intriguing developments uh, for Alzheimer's disease and dementia is research on ampokines. It's a new class of memory-enhancing medication. 
that uh, has a different mechanism than what we're used to. And it's going to be interesting to see whether uh, drugs like this end up being used for enhancement purposes as well as for treating disease. We have the question of cognitive enhancement. Once treatments for disease become available, so does the option, subject, of course, to professional and legal standards, therein enters ethics, of using them to boost function in healthy individuals. The many ethical questions that we have to contend with uh, when deciding what to do in this area, uh, including slippery slope arguments, which I'll get to. There are questions about safety, autonomy, coercion, fairness and competition, the wise use of our brain power, and the just distribution of resources, as well as the proper roles of medical professionals. My colleague Anjan Chatterjee at Penn uh, has uh, written about what he calls cosmetic neurology. We are now awash, says Chatterjee, in an epidemic of cognitive and affective disorders, affective disorders being depression, for example. As our abilities to modify and treat these disorders improve, he says, it will be a small step to transfer these interventions to healthy individuals. Television and internet advertisements will likely bolster demand and provide access in unprecedented ways. We've seen this happen. For physicians, he goes on, in an increasingly bureaucratized healthcare system, the attraction of a fee-for-service practice may be overwhelming, as evidenced by boutique clinics that mushroom in wealthy suburbs. If history serves as a guide, cosmetic neurology will follow in the footsteps of cosmetic surgery. This is another example of a slippery slope argument, isn't it? Uh, drugs are now available, and more are being developed to improve cognitive function in dementia. Those drugs, once manufactured, once available, once marketed, become available for off-label use in healthy persons, subject to professional standards, subject to the law. Chatterjee is arguing that there'll be intense pressure to make those drugs available to healthy people. Those pressures include market pressures. Uh, the appeal of military applications would like for soldiers in the midst of battle to remain awake and alert to uh, safeguard their own lives and those of their comrades. Performance expectations, sales, and academics, and many professional walks of life will, uh, he says, compel us to embrace the use of drugs for this purpose. More and more people will have use to them to keep up and remain competitive. The slippery slope argument, how far will it go? It depends, of course, on what types of drugs are available, how safe they are, what kind of marketing they get. There are numerous factors to consider that we can't predict uh, in their entirety. This is a strong slippery slope argument, I think. I don't know how far our society will go or choose to go in this direction. But once you've headed down the slope, your choices in some ways diminish because it's harder to, to climb back up the slope once you've gone down it. And we have to ask questions such as, can enhancement be distinguished from treatment? Where do we draw that line? And are such enhancements inevitable? Are they safe? Should legal restrictions be applied? Would people comply with them? What kind of society would we become if his predictions become true? Do we want to become a society in which brain-boosting drugs are routine? Uh, what would that look like? Would widespread use also compete with other medical resources? Medical resources are limited. Uh, if this is going to be a huge market, it's going to require uh, time and, and effort and space in the clinic among medical practices, not only to prescribe 
enhancing drugs, but to deal with medical complications of them. And in a world where we don't have enough healthcare resources to meet basic needs of people, is this a wise direction to go? In answer to that, there was an accompanying editorial talking about slippery slopes by Richard Deese uh, in the journal Neurology. And Deese says, if we accept slippery slope arguments like Chatterjee's, we're left thinking that we have no recourse when the forces of the market and the power of the military combine to foist a change upon us. In doing so, we have simply surrendered ethics to power. On such a view, he says, there is no ethics, just acceptance. Yet such despair is unwarranted because we can choose. We face deep moral questions that we must simply answer one by one. So if we look more closely at the ethical arguments that have been advanced in regard to cognitive enhancement, we'll, we'll look at them one by one. Uh, but ethics, as, as you all know, is about the, the ought question. It's neuroscience, technology, supply us with the means for the can we questions. And then we're left with the more difficult and more interesting, I think, ought we questions, and neuroethics informs that discussion. We have a number of examples of inadequate intelligence. We're talking about the scale of normality. What is health? What is disease? Uh, we have dementia, which is the decline of intelligence uh, with disease. We have learning disorders, which is uh, incomplete development of intelligence at an early age. And then we have people with already normal intelligence. There also is a spectrum. And I think if we, were, if we had medications available to improve cognition in these classes of cognitive function, we would say yes uh, to should we use these drugs for dementia, for learning disorders, help people who are impaired. But to use the same drugs for already normal intelligence is a big question in ethics. Who's to say what's inadequate about a given person's intelligence? And then who gets to decide that? We have a history of use and misuse of IQ scales in the history of this country to decide who gets to do what in life and in school. And um, people are not always very good at making those decisions. Um, what means of enhancement would be available? And why do we desire it? And what standard of better brains is assumed? Traditionally, the treatment enhancement distinction refers to, on the one hand, healing to restore, to preserve, to prevent human malfunctioning, but right what's gone wrong with the body. And on the other hand, enhancement, which traditionally has not been part of the medical enterprise, but has become so in the area of cosmetic surgery, for example, to exceed what is normal and to improve on nature. Teeth whitening would be another example of a cosmetic intervention. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but uh, that's the distinction between healing and enhancement. It's not a bright line. There are a lot of intermediate areas that some would see as healing, some as enhancement. And uh, ethicists so far have been unable to agree on any one line to draw through those two categories to distinguish them. One reason is there are a lot of hidden assumptions about what is meant by normal health and what's meant by better. Loaded questions in philosophy. And most cognitive capacities fall along a continuum. There's not one type of human being that's normal. There are many types of people, many types of brains, and a whole continuum of normality. So there's no clear boundary. We might ask, rather than is 
this intervention intended to be for a treatment or enhancement, we might ask, well, what are good uses of drugs that augment cognitive function? And then what criteria should we decide upon that makes a use good or acceptable? So I want to look at some of the arguments in favor of cognitive stimulation and cognitive enhancement. Uh, one is the respect for autonomy, which we all cherish in ethics. It's a guiding principle. Our respect for persons, for others' right to self-determination based on the innate human dignity which we all possessed. Patients are free to make informed medical decisions. And the use of a legal medication may be viewed as a matter of personal choice. So why not allow people to enhance? It's an autonomous decision. There's the idea of cognitive liberty advanced by Rice and Tentia. She says every person's fundamental right to think independently, to use the full spectrum of his or her mind, and to have autonomy over his or her own brain chemistry is a matter of cognitive liberty, a basic right, you'd say. There are, however, limits to autonomy, as there are limits to all of the principles that govern the ethical discussion. Appeals to autonomy are inadequate when deciding whether to medicate children who are not yet of an age where they can render informed consent. And while the right to refuse medical treatment is considered fundamental in medicine, uh, patients do not have a similar right, an absolute right, to receive whatever medical treatments they request, uh, nor the right to receive enhancing interventions of their choosing. There's an incentive for physicians. As I mentioned, reimbursement in medicine in, in many sectors is declining. The cost of operating medical practice is not declining. You've got to make up the difference to pay for your staff, to pay for your facilities, and so forth. The bottom line is I cannot be ignored. There would be a huge incentive to develop a boutique practice of providing some cognitive enhancements in order to help your bottom line. There's the availability argument. Once drugs are available to treat disease, then they're also available for non-label indications, as I mentioned. And what off-label indications are appropriate? We have a number of subjectively gauged symptoms in medicine that, that we treat that are hard to quantify, objectify. Those include chronic pain and fatigue. Are we to add cognitive inadequacy to the list of subjectively defined medical indications? The argument for availability leads like a slippery slope into the inevitability argument, which is kind of interesting. I alluded to that earlier. My colleague Martha Farah, a psychologist at Penn, appeals to inevitability when she writes, enhancement is not just a theoretical possibility. Enhancement of mood, cognition, and vegetative functions in healthy people is now a fact of life. And the only uncertainties concern the speed with which new and more appealing enhancement methods will become available and attract more users. Essentially, it's already here. Face it, you might as well slide down the slope and enjoy it. The only questions are how fast are you going to go down the slope and, and how can we attract more people? And as I mentioned earlier, the appeal to inevitability is really an abandonment of ethics. You're saying the decision's already been made, the genie's out of the bottle, no longer any need to ask the ethical question, should we? There's the argument for safety. It works both ways. The safety argument should raise cautions in our mind if a given drug would increase, for example, the risk of developing anxiety, depression, headaches, cardiac arrhythmias, and so forth, then we would want to hold off. 
But there might be a positive safety argument for developing cognitive enhancing drugs. And that is enhancing vigilance, enhancing wakefulness. I alluded to soldiers earlier. Awake for several days for some missions, that soldier needs to stay alert in adverse territory. There's situations in civilian life also where staying awake could have safety implications. There was an interesting uh, study a few years ago looking at adolescents with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And a group of them were given uh, methylphenidate, a stimulant, also known as Ritalin. And when their driving habits were studied, the ones that received the stimulant did better, had fewer driving errors on a standardized test than the ones that were not prescribed the stimulant. Now, as far as I know, an experiment like this has not been done on healthy people, that is, people without attention deficit disorder. But what if it were done? And what if we were to find that, say, truck drivers who have to stay awake on the road for a long time, and you know, if they get drowsy and fall asleep, a very serious accidents can occur. Would we be safer as a society if we were to mandate the use of wakefulness-promoting medications or stimulants uh, to people who have to remain awake and alert for long hours? What about air traffic controllers? What about surgeons who are operating for 12, 16 hours for difficult cases? Would we be safer if we were to encourage or even mandate the use of stimulants in that situation? I don't know. Uh, should we do the experiments to find out? What would be the implications of learning the answer to that question? There was another interesting study looking at donepezil, which is used to treat Alzheimer's disease, on non-demented, that is normal, older adults in a flight simulator. And this drug, which given to normal people, actually improved their scores on their ability to perform complex tasks compared to placebo. So it's interesting what these drugs might be used for, good and bad purposes. We have the hypothetical option of enhancing uh, physicians, maybe enhancing nurses, pharmacists, maybe enhancing uh, bioethicists, educators. What would it mean to enhance lawyers? What kind of a world would that, would that be? I asked this idea to a group of my colleagues at the American Academy of Neurology, hoping to stimulate some, some discussion, but it stimulated only thought, I think. Uh, but I explored this idea also in an article uh, in the AMA Virtual Mentor Online, which you can access on the internet. You don't need a subscription. The idea is this. Suppose that future studies were to show that physicians who have been cognitively enhanced through drugs, for example, have reduced rates of medical prescribing error. We could actually measure the number of decreased mortalities if that could be shown to be true. I don't know whether it's true. Suppose that physicians taking enhancing drugs were able to treat more patients in the same amount of time, increased efficiency, throughput, better bottom line. Would the patient in this scenario have the right to request care from an enhanced physician? I want to see an enhanced physician. I came all of this way. I'm paying money, I want to see an enhanced specialist, not your ordinary specialist. Would hospitals and clinics be justified in requiring physicians then to take cognitive enhancing drugs for better safety? Would the benefit to patients in terms of physician efficiency and alertness outweigh potential risks to physicians if the drugs were not completely safe? And who would get to decide that? These are some of the questions that we would have to ask and deal with practically if we had available cognitive enhancing drugs, and if they were widely used, legal, and considered safe. These are interesting ethical questions. 
That was the first part of The Slippery Slope of Normality, Lessons from Neuroethics by William P. Cheshire, Jr., M.D. Dr. Cheshire is Senior Research Fellow on Neuroethics for the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity and Professor of Neurology at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. The views expressed herein are Dr. Cheshire's and do not necessarily reflect the positions of Mayo Clinic or Mayo Foundation USA. This lecture was originally delivered as a combined institute session during our 2009 pre-conference institutes. For more information about our courses and our summer conference, please visit our website at cbhd.org. The Bioethics Podcast is a project of the Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity. The Center for Bioethics and Human Dignity, exploring the nexus of biomedicine, biotechnology, and our common humanity. Our website, cbhd.org, has a wealth of materials on a wide range of bioethical issues. For more information about the Center, and to support the work of the Center and projects like this podcast, please visit our website at cbhd.org. My name is Michael Sleesman, and I'm the Managing Director and Research Scholar of the Center. Thank you for listening to the Bioethics Podcast. Thank you.